Well, recently, I bought a wood chipper. And I love my wood chipper. My house sits out in the forest, and limbs are always falling down into my yard. So it's convenient for me to gather up all of those sticks and just kind of run them through the wood chipper. It's just great. I love grinding stuff and destroying stuff. A wood chipper is just fabulous. If you don't have a wood chipper, I encourage you to go out today and get one. Yet I realize that a wood chipper can be abused and misused. Folks have been known to put their hands down to shoot to unclog the machine. Fingers have gone missing. I read of an Oregonian woman who killed her husband, then disposed of his body by running him through the wood chipper. And in my instruction manual, that is never once listed as a valid use for a wood chipper. In fact, if I don't show up here one Sunday morning and Kathy flees town on a flight to Tahiti, check the wood chipper. I was probably eating Doritos in bed and the poor girl just couldn't handle it anymore, pushed her over the edge. But it would still be an invalid use for a wood chipper. And here's my point. Just because a wood chipper is misused, even abused, that doesn't mean that we should outlaw wood chippers. And just because the gift of tongues is often misused and abused, it doesn't mean that we should run from it or have nothing to do with it. Yet this has happened to some Christians in their attitude toward this gift. They have seen bodies, church bodies that is, chipped up and divided over the gift of tongues. And now they want nothing to do with this very good gift. If that's been your thinking this morning, I want to challenge you to reconsider. Jesus thought enough of this gift to speak of it in Mark chapter 16. Tongues frequently appears in the book of Acts and in the early church. And here in 1 Corinthians, Paul devotes a whole chapter to its practice. Obviously, if God considers the gift of tongues a vital subject, how can we afford to ignore it? And why would we want to? All God's gifts are good, including the gift of tongues. So here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul explains this important gift. And he provides us two things, a contrast and a context for tongues. To help us untangle tongues, he contrasts it with the gift of prophecy. Then he informs us that the proper context for the use of tongues is in our own private devotional life or in small groups of informed believers. Chapter 14 begins, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. The dove of the Holy Spirit flies on two wings. We need both the fruits and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 13, we learn that without the fruits of the Spirit, namely the gift of love, that we're nothing. But also, we need the gifts of the Spirit. And so he tells us, desire spiritual gifts. There is a Christian denomination that has adopted as its official policy towards spiritual gifts the phrase, seek not, forbid not. 
I suppose that's kind of a middle-of-the-road point of view. And you know what's also in the middle of the road? A long, fat, yellow streak. And that's how I see that motto. Adopt the attitude, seek not, forbid not, and you should also add, and get not. Seek not, forbid not, and get not. Paul says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. If you don't desire them, you're not going to get them. This morning, we're going to study the gifts of prophecy and tongues. But let's remember, these aren't just matters that we should believe. These are gifts that we can receive. And in verse 1, Paul adds, he begins his contrast, especially that you may prophesy. And when Bear Bryant, the legendary Alabama football coach, was in his prime, the bear would observe the team's practices from a tower overlooking the practice field. Bryant trusted in his position coaches and in the playbook to direct the team on the field. But when he wanted to address a specific situation, he would shout down with his bullhorn. And in a sense, the gift of prophecy is God's bullhorn. God oversees us from heaven's tower. He watches our lives. His general instruction is provided to us by the playbook, the Bible, and by the on-field coach, the Holy Spirit. But on occasion, when there's a specific issue that God wants to address to us personally, He picks up His bullhorn and He speaks to us directly. This is the gift of prophecy. Prophecy is this instant inspiration. It's like spiritual texting. It comes from God's keypad to yours. The Hebrew word translated prophecy means to tumble, bubble up like a fountain or to tumble forth. Rather than a pre-planned speech, the gift of prophecy is an extemporaneous message prompted by the Holy Spirit. It flows from my spirit into my mind and out of my mouth. Prophecy is a spontaneous, ecstatic utterance. God's Spirit puts His message in my mind, and then I speak that message. My mouth becomes God's mouthpiece. Amos chapter 3, verse 8 compares the gift of prophecy to a lion's growl. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Most often, God's Spirit speaks to us in a still, small voice, but prophecy is compared to a lion's roar. Verse 2 tells us, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. Now again, these next several verses are going to contrast prophecy and tongues. And first notice, the gift of prophecy is a message from God to man, whereas the gift of tongues is a means by which man speaks to God in either prayer or praise. In charismatic, in some Pentecostal circles, often you'll hear an utterance in tongues that's followed by a supposed interpretation. Something like, thus says the Lord, listen to me, as if the tongues were God speaking. But again, notice verse 2. He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Tongues is not God speaking to man. It is a way for man to speak to God. 
That means that in the case that I reference, what follows, the tongue, is really not an interpretation at all. It may have been a prophecy that followed the tongue, but the utterance of tongues remained uninterpreted. Tongues are never God speaking to man, but man speaking to God. Make sure you get that clear. Now verse 3 continues. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Tongues is praise to God, but prophecy is a message of edification and exhortation to men. Most people, when they hear the term prophecy, think of prognosticating or the foretelling of the future. That may or may not be true of the gift of prophecy. A prophecy might have a predictive element, but it might not. Here we're told that the purpose of this gift is edification, exhortation, and comfort. That is, a prophecy will build up, it will stir up, and it will cheer up, whatever the case may be. For two long years, Kathy and I struggled to have kids when we first got married. Things came to a head at a pastor's conference that we attended the last weekend of May 1982. Kathy asked the ladies present to pray for her. And as they prayed, one of the ladies prophesied over my wife. The Lord spoke through her and said, By this time next year, you will have a child. Well, to make a long story short, Zach was born the same weekend exactly one year later. On May the 29th, 1983. There's a splattering of applause. Do you know Zach? No. If you did, you'd give him a hearty applause. Great. <laughs> that prophecy was fulfilled to the very weekend. And what kind of effect do you think that prophecy has had on our family? It has certainly built up our faith. And it has stirred up Zach in his ministry. What a legacy, knowing that your birth was foretold directly by God. And when Zach gets discouraged, I'm sure it cheers him up to know that God has always had a plan for his life and that he's going to continue to fulfill it. Here's why we desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. It builds up, it stirs up, and it cheers up. Verse 4, though, explains why Paul prefers prophecy over tongues. He says, For he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. If an unknown tongue is spoken in the church and no one understands it, then it only benefits the person who spoke. Whereas prophecy is God's message to the whole church. Everyone gets blessed through the prophecy. To me, tongues is like a personal pan pizza. It feeds only one person. Whereas prophecy is like an extra, extra large pizza where everyone kind of sits around it and eats off the prophecy. That's how my mind thinks. Paul continues, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. No, I personally speak in tongues. I enjoy the gift. It means much to me. It's a wonderful way to praise or to pray to God. 
And yet I also know that the gift of tongues is the least of all the spiritual gifts, since it's the only gift that doesn't encourage or build up the whole body of Christ. The person who speaks in tongues gets blessed, but the gift of tongues doesn't benefit the hearers unless it's accompanied by the gift of interpretation. He continues. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Now, if you read chapter 14 in the Old King James Version, the term tongue is rendered unknown tongue. This is because the tongue is a praise or prayer to God in a language unknown to the speaker. It's supernatural. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the people had gathered in Jerusalem from all over the world. When the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke with the gift of tongues, the crowds were amazed to hear God being praised in their own native language. One believer spoke in Greek. He spoke tongues in Greek. He didn't know Greek, but that's what his... The language God gave him was Greek. So the Greeks in the crowd all heard that. Another spoke in Egyptian, and the Egyptians heard that. Some spoke in Latin. The Romans heard that. Others spoke in some Arabian dialect, and some Arabs in the crowd heard that. The people in the crowd heard the different languages from the places that they hailed from, where where they actually grew up, so they knew the languages. You see, the miracle of the gift at Pentecost, coupled with the multicultural demographic of the crowd, combined so that the language groups became privy to the church's praise. But understand, Pentecost was the exception in that regard. I doubt if the Corinthian church was a multilingual congregation. They all probably spoke the same language, maybe a couple of languages. So, To speak in other foreign languages in this home church made no sense. Paul is saying the goal when the local church gathers is to teach revelation. That is the Bible. It's to hear from God. He talks about the importance of communication when we gather in verse 7. He says, even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, How will it be known what is piped or played? The point is, is that whenever people gather, the reason is to communicate by sound or by word. And unintelligible sounds are nothing but noise. He says, for if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare himself for battle? I mean, bugles are used in battle to direct an army's movements. If the soldiers are unable to distinguish the sounds, what's the point? Is that bugler blowing a charge or is he blowing a retreat signal? If the soldiers can't tell, then the army is destined for defeat. The point is communication is important. So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. Again, when a church gathers, the emphasis should always be on clear easy to understand communication. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, 
And he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Recall Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel. The world rebelled against God. And God confused the languages, driving the people apart. But in the church, Jesus' goal is to reverse the effects of Babel. He reconciles and He unifies people so that they'll praise God in one voice. The church, again, is all about clear communication. That's why their emphasis in tongues was inappropriate. Verse 12. Even so, you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you may excel, seek to excel. The Corinthians were enamored with these spiritual gifts, especially the gift of tongues, but they had forgotten the purpose of the gifts. Think of a baby sucking on a set of car keys. Our kids always used to suck on the car keys. The infant, though, doesn't understand the purpose of those keys, obviously. And Christians who use the gathering of the church as a stage to speak in tongues don't understand the purpose of the gathering or of the gifts. Church isn't about self-entertainment. It's about building up the saints. Paul continues, Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. If you're in a small group of believers and everyone is worshiping and waiting upon the Lord and the Spirit prompts you to speak in tongues, that's good. But if no one else in the group interprets what's been uttered, then it's up to you to pray for the interpretation. Again, the gifts should be to the benefit of the whole church. If your gift of tongues doesn't get interpreted, then no one can be blessed by what you said. And the purpose of any church gathering is the mutual benefit of all. Verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Notice that now. My spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Now, it's useless for us to be discussing a subject where some of us don't understand what it is we're discussing. So, what is the gift of tongues? The word tongues simply means languages or dialects. But the gift is not a language that I learn. No one can teach me to speak in tongues. It's not a technique that I learn. It's a language conveyed supernaturally by God's Spirit. Here's a definition. The gift of tongues is a Spirit-given capacity to praise God or pray to God in a language other than my own native tongue or languages I may have learned. Through the gift of tongues, the Holy Spirit liberates me to praise God in a free and uninhibited manner I become fluent in worship. My understanding is unfruitful, but my spirit prays. Now, according to Ethnologue, there are now 6,912 living languages in the world. And of those 6,912 languages, I know only one. That's English. And I know only a little bit of that. The English language consists of 800,000 words, excluding 500,000 technical terms. 
It's estimated that the average person in their lifetime will only use around 60,000 of those 800,000 words. And even more limiting, the daily working vocabulary of the average person is only 7,000 words. That means that I use less than 1% of the one language that I know. Now, this isn't a problem for me until I want to express a thought that's very meaningful to me. Have you ever been at a point where you really want to say something to a person and yet you couldn't find the right word? It's a frustrating experience to have deep feelings and yet be groping for words. There are moments when even the most eloquent person gets caught off guard and is at a loss for words. This awkward articulation seems to occur most often in emotional moments when our hearts are full of love and joy or grief and sorrow, when we're about to burst with pent-up emotion, but we can't find the right words to communicate what it is that we're feeling on a deep, deep level inside. This happens to me at moments with my wife. I want to tell Kathy how much I love her. But she's heard I love you so often, it's blasé. I can't afford diamonds, so I'm stuck. And besides, I also say, I love ice cream. And I love wood chippers. And I love Kathy. But it don't all mean the same. And this is a problem that I have in my relationship with God. At times, I'm awed by His presence. I'm, I'm amazed by His love for me. His grace is sufficient. I'm blown away by His blessings. And suddenly, the speaker becomes speechless. I love you just doesn't cut it. See, humans are like this funnel. The narrow neck of the funnel is our intellect. Whereas the wide base is our spirit. And on the spiritual level, you're capable of experiencing deep emotions, profound emotions. Yet all these feelings that you feel on the spiritual level have to be channeled through that constricted intellect and through that limited vocabulary. It's our narrowness that chokes off the flow of our feelings and ends up bottling up our emotions. And this becomes frustrating to us when we want to worship God. Yet, the Holy Spirit knows every language that has ever been spoken. He knows the 6,912 languages currently active. But according to chapter 13, verse 1, the Holy Spirit is even fluent in the language of the angels. I am linguistically limited, but the Holy Spirit isn't. He is omnilingual. That means that He can plant words in my mind. Words with which I am unfamiliar, but words that accurately and articulately express the depths of my heart. And as these words enter my mind, if I step out in faith and utter them, believing them to be the Holy Spirit's interpretation of my praise or of my concern, then my speaking in tongues will produce a fulfilling release of expression and emotion in my own life. That's why the gift of tongues edifies oneself, the person who's speaking. Suddenly, the person who was moments earlier fumbling and frustrated with his words 
now becomes free and fluent. The gift of tongues bypasses my narrow mind and my meager vocabulary. Again, notice how Paul puts it in verse 14. My spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. On the day of Pentecost, when tongues was spoken, it was an active human dialect. But it doesn't have to be. It could be a dead language no longer in use. Or it could be an angelic language, as Paul mentions in chapter 13. There are researchers who have actually recorded tongues and have concluded that it's not human language at all. It's just gibberish. But understand, they miss the point. For when I pray in tongues, it's my spirit that prays. Not my mind. My spirit isn't subject to the rules of articulation. As long as God understands what I say, it doesn't have to conform to human linguistical patterns. Whatever the Holy Spirit gives me to say, I can trust that God in heaven is going to interpret it as the purest praise. Bible teacher Harold Horton explains it this way. The gift of tongues sinks a well into the dumb profundities of the rejoicing spirit, liberating a jet of long-pent ecstasy that gladdens the heart of God and man. Have you never in the presence of Jesus felt inarticulate on the very verge of eloquence? If that's been true of you, then ask God for the gift of tongues. Verse 15 tells us, What is the conclusion then? Well, I will pray with the Spirit and I'll also pray with understanding. I will sing with the Spirit and I will also sing with the understanding. Paul prays, he even sings in the Holy Spirit. But he also prays and sings in his own language. In other words, there is a time and a place for both. He says, otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks? Since he does not understand what you say. For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. And notice again how Paul refers to tongues. He calls it your giving of thanks. Again, this is important. Tongues is our prayer or praise to God, not God's message to us. And notice an underlying concept here in verse 15. Paul is interjecting the idea that time and place is important. See, these whole chapters we've been going through have been discussing the church as the body of Christ. You know, the different venues of the church. In the life of the early church, there were different types of meetings. At times, the church met publicly. The meeting was open to all comers, even unbelievers. But there were also smaller gatherers, gatherings of informed believers where unbelievers weren't anticipated. And this gave room for different types of experiences. And Paul is saying that the public gathering is not the venue for tongues. If the point of our meetings is to love and to minister to all people present, then why use a gift that we know some folks won't understand and really can't appreciate? This is why at Calvary Chapel, our Sunday public gatherings are reserved for two things, for worship and for Bible teaching. Not a prayer meeting or in a small group that mostly believers attend. It's no big deal for someone to speak in tongues. Most of the folks in attendance would be familiar. But if it happens on Sunday, 
I mean, we have unbelievers here. We have seekers in the crowd. You bring your friends to church one Sunday, you know, and all of a sudden somebody goes off in tongues. I mean, it might scare them or confuse them. At the very least, it might give them the impression that we're weird and that they don't really belong. We don't want that. And this is why Paul writes in verse 18, I thank my God that I speak in tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, that is in the public gathering, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Over the years, Pentecostal-leaning folks have tried to pressure me into making more room for the tongues and the vocal gifts in our public services. But I have opted to be biblical. I'm not against tongues, and neither is Paul. He used the gift more than any of the Corinthians. But the church's public gatherings were not the time or place. Apparently, the most charismatic apostle of them all understood that tongues was best practiced in a person's private devotional life or in a small group of informed believers, not in the public gatherings of the church. Verse 20 sums it up. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In other words, spiritual gifts and common sense ought to go together. Being spiritual is being sensitive to the setting. There is a time and a place. Now verse 21 is where our text gets a little tricky. Paul writes, In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. And Paul is quoting the Old Testament, Isaiah 28 verse 11. But then he says in verse 22, Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Now, at first, this seems contradictory. Wait a minute. In verse 21, Paul says that God tried to get the attention of His people Israel through other tongues. But then in verse 22, he says that tongues are a sign to unbelievers, not believers. Well, the key to unraveling this is to understand Isaiah chapter 28. The prophet Isaiah had predicted an invading army would come and sack Jerusalem. The Assyrian invaders spoke a foreign language. Thus, when the Jews heard these unknown tongues being spoken in their streets, it would be a sign to them that judgment had come. Thus, tongues is a sign, but it's a sign of judgment. So, when an unbeliever enters the public assembly of the church, you don't want to heap God's judgment on the poor guy before he's even had an opportunity to hear about God's love. I mean, don't condemn him before you try to reach him. But that's what would happen if someone speaks in tongues and it immediately turns the guy off. His uncomfortable reaction to the strange tongues is a sign of his own judgment. Why would we go there? Why would we let that happen? Verse 23 continues. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, 
will they not say that you are out of your mind? The fact that they freak out over the tongues is proof that they're unfamiliar with the things of the Spirit. But is that the first impression you want to give an unbeliever who comes into the church for the very first time? Do you want to highlight his ignorance and the judgment that's about to come upon him? Or do you want to try to build a bridge to him and reach out to him in God's love? In other words, don't scare them off before you try to bring them in. He says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Though tongues is confusing to an unbeliever, prophecy is clear and compelling and convicting. When an unbeliever is here and someone speaks a word of prophecy, they're amazed at what was spoken. You know, that's me he's talking about. How did he know that about me? Wow, God must know what I'm going through. Perhaps God even has a plan for me. Maybe he still cares about me, even after all my sin. This is why in the public settings of the local church, the gift of prophecy is preferable to the gift of tongues. If everyone gets carried away and starts speaking in tongues, well, it blesses those with the gift, but everyone else will be confused or scared silly or just might leave. Whereas prophecy builds up and stirs up and cheers up. And this is why in our public times together, we place an emphasis on Bible teaching for the Bible is a book of prophecy. This is God's word, God speaking to us. When a service is dominated by tongues, a few folks get blessed. But when we teach the Scripture, God's prophetic word, everyone walks away encouraged. Verse 26 tells us, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Apparently, the church at Corinth loved to meet in smaller groups that were informal and unstructured. Everyone participated in these meetings. They were very interactive. They were kind of a spiritual free-for-all. And that would have been okay had it really been for all. But these meetings were being used by a few haughty believers as a platform for them to show off spiritually. The small group meetings in Corinth needed some structure, some discernment, some restraint, and a whole lot of love. And so Paul provides them some structure. He says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. Now I've attended charismatic gatherings where everyone spoke and sang in tongues all at once. It was sort of a concert of tongues. But according to Paul, this is not a proper use. Paul instructs the Corinthians that those who speak in tongues should take their turn. And each use the gift of tongues followed by an interpretation. Verse 28, But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So if there's no interpretation, well then just keep it to yourself. You speak to God, God will be blessed. You'll, you'll be, feel free and, and fulfilled. It'll be a wonderful thing. But you won't have turned off anybody else. 
Notice assumed here is that the person who's speaking in tongues has an on-off switch. When you speak in tongues, God's Spirit gives you the utterance, but you control the volume, the reverb. Even the mute button belongs to you. I'll never forget a friend of mine who was standing, said he was at work one night. He, the Lord had really gotten a hold of his life, filled him with the Holy Spirit. It, it was wonderful what God was doing in his life. But he was at work one night. He worked at a grocery store. He stocked shelves at night. And he was standing there next to his co-worker. And he said, suddenly he got the urge to speak in tongues. And he just started blurting it out. He scared his poor co-worker to death. And then my friend had the audacity to blame his lack of discretion and impulsiveness on the Holy Spirit. He said, I just couldn't help it. The Spirit made me do it. That's not what Paul says. Jump ahead to verse 32 and he says of the gift of prophecy, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Apparently this also applies to the gift of tongues. The person speaking remains in control of their physical faculties. You know, it's sad, but how many times has a beautiful meeting of the church been interrupted by a random outburst of tongues or some errant outburst of tongues? It's happened all too often. In verse 29, Paul provides the Corinthians with more structure for their small group gatherings in the church. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. You know, the gift of Prophecy, as with all the spiritual gifts, is subject to counterfeit and to human error. In Jeremiah 14, the prophet tells us, The Lord said to me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and deceit and the deceit of their hearts. Not everybody who says, Thus saith the Lord, is really speaking for the Lord. There are deliberately deceptive people, false prophets. But then there are also well-meaning folks who just get deceived. You know, people can get worked up into an emotional lather and mistake their own imagination for a message from God. And this is why all prophecies need to be judged. I've known folks who made major life decisions on what they thought was a word of prophecy. They would have been wise to put it to a test. Was it confirmed by God's word? And was it in harmony with God's Son? If they had tested it, they would have realized that it was false. 1 Thessalonians 5 provides us a proper balance on this issue. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. And then verse 30. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. When someone speaks in a small group, it should be done in an orderly manner. Not all at once, but one at a time. Some restraint is needed. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The very first time we see the Holy Spirit in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 1. And what is He doing? He's hovering over the waters, bringing light out of the darkness, bringing order out of chaos. God is a God of order, not confusion. And here's why. 
where there's no order, people tend to get hurt. From time to time, you hear of a European soccer match that goes off the rails where folks get stampeded and crushed. There's no crowd control. And this can happen in church. If gatherings aren't conducted in an orderly manner, needs go unmet and people get overlooked and folks get hurt. God is into order. Not for order's sake. God is an OCD. He likes orderliness because He loves people. And speaking of order, verse 34 tells us, Let your women keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak. There again, speaking of love for people and caring for people and order in the church and people not getting hurt, women should keep silent in their church, for they are not permitted to speak. As if speaking in tongues wasn't controversial enough, here's another thought for us. Women, shh. Wait a minute. First, back in chapter 11, verse 5, chapter 11, qualifies this statement. There, Paul talked of ladies praying and prophesying in the church. That means that this can't be an absolute prohibition against a woman ever opening her mouth in church. It can't be. He's already talked about women praying and prophesying, and he spoke of it in a good light. What this means is that a woman should know her place in the church. It could be that in regards to these vocal gifts, speaking in tongues, by the way, it's an emotional gift. It comes to us at emotional times. Women can sometimes get emotional, and they can allow their emotions to get carried away. Men can too, but particularly it happens to women. And it could be that in this church, some of the women were getting carried away with the gift of tongues and they were usurping the authority of the church's male leadership. Hey, that's not a good thing. They didn't want to do that themselves. Here he's reminding the Corinthian women that, that what he had emphasized to them back in chapter 11, that in the church and that in the home, the men have been called to lovingly lead and the women to faithfully follow. And this is why Paul connects that in verse 34. He says, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. The women need to be submissive. And they need to encourage their husbands to lead by taking their questions to him and by putting him in the leadership role in their home. Ladies, you can do a lot to either undermine or undergird your husband's leadership. And when you come home from church and you have a question for him, it makes him feel like you think he knows something. That's always a good thing. And you're encouraging him in his leadership. They needed to let their husbands lead, and I am sure that this was advice they all willingly received. Don't you think? Absolutely. Verse 36. Or did the Word of God come originally from you? Or was it you only that it reached? Now Paul here figures that some of his readers are going to buck his arguments and instructions. And so he kind of backs them down ahead of time. The Corinthian church didn't hold an exclusive claim on the truth. 
Corinth wasn't the birthplace of the Bible or its only intended audience. The church in Corinth, as well as all other churches, are supposed to obey this book. And that's true not only of the first century churches in Asia and in Greece. It's true of our modern church as well. No church is exempt from biblical authority. I don't care how unpopular it might be with the culture. We are supposed to live out this book. It's the Scriptures, and we're supposed to follow the script. The Bible teaches us that before Jesus returns, perilous times will come. Our society will grow increasingly pagan. And it is a mistake for the church to think that it needs to emulate the world to reach it. As this world gets more pagan in its approach to life, the church needs to be more biblical. That's why we're sticking with this book even when it addresses issues that might make us uncomfortable. Paul was fully aware he was writing sacred scripture. He challenges the Corinthians to recognize his authority. He says, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. And then in verse 38, he exercises his authority by dismissing his detractors in a rather bold and matter-of-fact fashion. He says, but if anyone is ignorant, Well, then just let him be ignorant. I like that. Finally, in the last two verses, Paul sums up the big themes in this chapter. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. In the church, all things should be done decently and in order. And in order. But wait, wait now, wait. Don't, don't, don't just fold up your Bible now and listen to this last little thing. I got something very important to say. All things should be done decently in order. But first, let's do some things. Let's step out in faith. In chapter 14, Paul has corrected some abuses and misuses, but at least the Corinthians had some uses. There was a lot right in this church. They were seeking the Holy Spirit. They were open to spiritual gifts. They had faith to use those gifts. Let's apply that example. And then we'll have reason to apply Paul's instructions. Let's seek the power of the Holy Spirit. And let's be open to the spiritual gifts He might want to give us. Father, thank You.